Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Roundtable Podcast, where we interview experts who tackle the tough topics and share strategies and techniques that will help you start, build, and grow your real estate investing business. And now your host, Rob the House Guy. Today, we are super excited to have two powerhouses in our industry right here with us on the show. Now, normally we have investors, and yes, they are both investors, but today they have their legal hats on. They are attorneys, and we're going to be talking all about wholesaling. So welcome, Jeff Watson, and welcome, Angelo Russo. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. So we all know that wholesaling is a buzzword on the internet, at all the RIA meetings, anywhere you go. Heck, all these weekend classes that are blowing through town charging thousands of dollars, it's all based on wholesaling. But let's start by asking a legal opinion. What is wholesaling to you, Jeff? Wholesaling is when an individual buys a property at a low price because they're able to pay, fund it quickly, close, pay cash, and then they quickly resell it to a buyer who's willing to pay more, probably to a rehabber or a landlord or somebody like that. But to me, wholesaling done properly is buy it, take title, and resell. Same day, next day, next week, next month, doesn't matter. Gotcha. Angelo? I would agree with that, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're buying it low, you're just buying the property and you're buying them in bulk. Gotcha, okay, so we are there looking- There you go, yeah. So I, I believe what I hear you saying here is closing and taking title, which is completely contradicting what all of the gurus out there are talking about with assigning a contract. What does assigning a contract mean to you? Okay. So assigning a contract is on occasion permitted and legal. You know, remember, you gotta, I'm coming at it from the perspective of working with regulators in multiple states all across the United States of America on what is wholesaling, how it's regulated, how it's defined. Assigning a contract means that I've contracted to buy a property, I have the ability and capacity to perform as a party to that contract but then I choose to assign that contract because maybe my rehab crew's tied up and Angelo's crew's free to go, so I'm able to kick that thing over to him and he'll give me a small assignment fee for it. That is an assignment that is done properly and legally. Okay, so when you're coming across, you've been involved with title companies before. Yes. When you see assignments coming through the, the filter there, do you see any problems with them usually or what's one of the big hiccups that you see in the assignments? People are not able to actually perform on it or don't have the intention of performing on it. That usually causes an issue or they don't want to be paid on the closing statement or they want that hidden. They don't want someone to know how much they're making. All of that stuff is disclosed. People need to know what's going on. You have to have transparency. Transparency is yes. the word. I, I always, love that. He's I, so right. He's I always so right. say that. Because people always are asking me questions about that in a real estate deal. Like, was well, this wrong? And they always ask me, they go, I need an investor-friendly title company. That's I've been asked no, that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just do your deal right. Any title company can close it. I say that all the time. I'm like, well, unless you're committing fraud, they're all investor-friendly, unless you're looking for someone that's going to let you do something illegal. So what they say, when what I read when they say investor-friendly, when I see that, because I see it all the time, social media, everywhere else, is I don't know what I'm doing. Please tell me a name of a title company that can help me finish my, my own deal. <laughs> I'm gonna use that as my answer all the time and I may give you credit for it. Because that, that is the truth, that's exactly it. I need someone that's going to handle this deal for me and get me paid. Because I don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. Which means I haven't educated myself, which means I haven't plugged into the training that's available through RealFlow and other places to see how I really do this. Right. I get lots of weird questions. Someone says, I have 
my trust that's supposed to be purchasing the property and we're going to be assigning it, but I want the check from the title company to go to this LLC. I'm like, that's not going to work. That's right. It won't work. It's not, yeah. I'm like, well, we need an inv- a friendly you know, title company that will do that. I'm like, if they do it, they should be closed down relatively soon. Yes, <laughs> he's right. Well, I believe what people need to realize is a title company, they are not just cowboys out there able to do anything they want. They have a title insurance company that is underwriting them and auditing what they do. So when their files are all messed up, Title companies disappear. <laughs> they do. They they can they can disappear. But every title company that's out there, like you said, they're owned or governed by one or more major underwriters, and they have all these underwriting bulletins and guidelines that they have to follow if they want to stay in business, keep their license, and not go to jail. And so you've got to figure out as an investor, how do I structure my deals to a be legal and b write it down to where the title company can read the paperwork and figure out what's happening and then get it done. I usually tell people on top of being legal, the underwriters sometimes have their own guidelines. So if you come to me and say, can you do something that's legal? Yes, but that doesn't mean that the underwriter is going to approve it. And since they're on the hook and they're insuring it, you also have to make them happy, which might be above and beyond what's legal. Exactly. Well put. All right. We used a word a couple minutes ago called intent. Mm, And capacity. (laughs) Intent and capacity. Yes. Yes. Could you expand on that intent and capacity, what that would mean to somebody? Well, let me step back one thing before we get there, okay? If your marketing message is, I buy houses, I pay cash, I close quickly, then flip and do it. (laughs) Buy the house, pay cash and close, okay? Because if your marketing message is, I buy houses, I pay cash, I close quickly, and every deal you do is an assignment, well, you're a fraud. Okay, you're engaged in a fraudulent activity on a regular basis and look out, Uncle Rico may come visit. (laughs) I don't want to I want to scare people, but I want them to realize there's a legitimate, easy way to do this. So you have to have the intent and capacity that does that mean you have to perform on every deal? No. When you put a property under contract, it's like if it passes my inspection criteria, I've got the money and I can close. Now, well, wait a second, Jeff. I don't have the money in my own bank account. Great. Do you have a private lender or two lined up? How about a hard money source? How about dough for a day? Do you have a couple of them lined up that have said, listen, you get something that fits this criteria, we'll fund it. Okay, then you now have capacity to perform. So it sounds to me like it's not even a problem with just the vision of real estate. It could be Department of Commerce with misleading advertising at that point that could lend you in hot water. In Ohio, the division of real estate is under the Department of Commerce. Oh, okay, yeah. and so I've I've had the opportunity to work with the excellent fine people down there, the state of Ohio Division of Real Estate, and they've been leading the charge across the United States of America. Some of the people there in Columbus have been influencing policy across the nation for the last several years, particularly when it comes to wholesaling and how it's viewed and how it's regulated and how it's interpreted. And I've had um, I've had conversations with them where they're like. Wholesaling in their eyes is assignments and it bothers them. But when you buy it, take title, and then resell, they're like, well, you're a flipper. That's fine. We also mentioned in their disclosure and transparency. So as I it used to be, I've been doing this since the mid-90s. And it used to be that if you were assigning a contract, you just had to pick one person that knew how much you were making on your assignment. Which side of the HUD do you want to be on on your assignment? You have to pick one or the other. Now it seems that everybody has to know what... What have you seen? Most of the time I like if the buyer and the seller see both sides of the HUDs, but even on retail transactions, sometimes that doesn't happen. Most realtors will ask that you know both parties sign off so they can see exactly that the fees are split the correct way. But 
the buyer or the seller is not entitled to see the other side other than to make sure that it's done right. And since the title company is a unbiased third party, you can sort of assume that they're doing things the way that they're supposed to. Now, we've talked a lot about assignments of contract here. And the second question that always pops up, at least in the state, and I deal primarily in the state of Ohio probably 99% of the time, is people ask me about double closes. Mm. <laughs> double closes. And so you start out, tell me, what is a double close? You're buying the property and then you're reselling it. It might be a minute later, it might be a day later, it might be two days later. But uh, the thing that usually gets most people are they're trying to use the money that they're making from the second closing to finance the first one. And you cannot do that. That is what is called a dry first closing. And that's a no-no. The double closings are perfectly legit, but they have to be independent, standalone transactions, each one standing on its own merits. They can be two minutes apart. They can be two hours apart, two days apart, but they got to be able to stand alone. So taking the money from the C buyer and bringing it over into the A to B transaction is a no-no. It's a no-no legally or ethically or both? It is a no-no. <laughs> well, I'm going to speak to it my side and then Angelo's going to fill this in because I, I won't hit it all. It's a no-no as to the underwriting guidelines issued by all the title insurance, uh, title insurance carriers. It's a no-no as it relates to your not being candid with the parties in the transaction. So you've got, a, you've got a fraudulent misrepresentation there as well. Those are the two things I've got. I'm sure you can fill in more. I would say years and years ago, a lot of times the C buyer might even sign off allowing you to do that if they know they're, they're doing that. And now you've gotten rid of the transparency, but again, you're going above and beyond where the underwriters are saying, we don't want to see that. On top right. of that, if the C buyer knows that you're doing that, do an assignment. There's no reason to right. maybe do the double close. Exactly. Well said. Now, we're focusing a lot on these assignments of contracts and these double closes and just assuming that these are all cash transactions. What happens when there's a bank or lending institution involved trying to do an assignment or double close? Well, double closes just take off the table at this point. Well, hang on a second. If my end buyer is getting institutional financing and I've taken the deal down and it takes them two weeks to come back in, that's fine. Nope, not a problem there. As long as the property is going to be worthy of being collateral to an institutional lender. Lenders have a hard time with a lot of times with that. And in their instructions, at least they used to. I haven't read one in the last maybe few months. But they're always saying, if a closing has occurred within the last 90 days, you need to notify yeah. us before you fund it. So even though you're allowed to do it, they need to notify about it. Right. And anything that you're paying above and beyond, if it's an assignment, that money for the assignment generally isn't on the sale price of the house. And so your financing is going to be based on what your purchase contract is. So if you're buying it for 100 and you're assigning it for five, ten thousand, 10000 it's not that you're buying it for 110. The financing is going to be based on the 100. Right. It, yeah. And so then that extra money that's not coming from the lender has got to be disclosed on the HUD. And I tell people to you know, show it as a POC paid outside of closing as buyer's additional basis. And because that buyer needs to have it tracked as to it's their basis. And I realize we're getting down into a real deep rabbit hole here. <laughs> but from a tax perspective, I want my buyer who's ended up taking title and holding the thing. I want to be clear as to how, how big their basis is in the property. Wow, Jeff, that's really, really great stuff. And I understand it because I've been doing this for 22 years. But I'm going to guess that some of the people watching this haven't been doing it. They're trying to get their first deal off the ground. And we have just completely scared them out of ever even getting involved in real estate with how deep we just went. Okay. So let's, let's just okay. simplify it and bring it all down here. and Back up out of the rabbit back hole. Back up out of the rabbit hole. Let's go down to that one simple piece of paper and talk about let's bring a deal in. You have new guy or girl walking into Bob or Betty homeowner and buying the house. 
What should be on their contract? Is there anything special that should be on the purchase agreement? Need the uh, name of the buyer, name of the seller, the property, the price. It's nice to have a closing date. Um, <laughs> you should have your property disclosures, but that's more of the state requirement as opposed to a contract requirement, lead paint disclosure. I've always said with a lot of wholesalers or a lot of investors when they're buying things, they don't always use the disclosures, which has minor repercussions, but the deal can still go through. Angelo's exactly right. It has some repercussions. I'd rather see them there. And then the last thing is, in all the things he listed, the other thing I would say is on that one page or page and a half purchase and sales agreement, identify the title company. Complete, <laughs> complete contact information of the title company. And the investor buyer needs to pick and control that from inception and don't back off, don't waver on that. And it's not so much that you want investor friendly, but you want someone you have a relationship with. So when you're calling, trying to get updates, trying to find information, they actually return a call. Right. I'm on a deal now that I'm having that difficulty. Yep. Another great piece of advice is to put all the contact information for the buyer and seller. It drives title companies <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because here's this goes back to a point I think we made earlier. Write that purchase and sales agreement so that some third party who's not been privy to any of the conversations, the negotiations, the marketing, doesn't anything, they can look at that contract and you go, oh, Bill and Susan are selling to Ed. Right. Ed's company is this. Ed's phone number is this. Bill and Susan live here. Their phone number is this. We're going to use XYZ title company. We're going to close on the 31st of July. We're done. It's an instruction manual. Yes. That's all it is. And if you're adding things to that, the, the last payoff or the last mortgage statement from the sellers Included in there. It has the contact information yeah. for the bank. It has the loan number on there. It helps the title company tremendously in order to get that payoff and speed things up. That is brilliant. And how about an authorization release on there? To release the title company will take care of getting that. But at least if you have the statement, it starts the process. They know who to put on the authorization and you know who to address it to. And just to button the deal up just a little bit tighter, going back to a point Angelo made, because it's so easy to get them off the internet, Go ahead, get the lead-based paint disclosure on there. Go ahead, get the residential real property disclosure on there. Because if for some reason you're not going to be able to close on this deal and you're going to assign it, I want you to have a buttoned-up contract that when you assign it to somebody else, there's no wiggle room out of it. What are your thoughts on the buyer's name, you know, Joe Smith, slash, and or assigns? Is it necessary, not necessary? In practice, most people want to the seller to actually sign off on that either way. So if the seller is going to be signing off on it, you, you can do it as an addendum afterwards. I think putting it on there actually just lets the seller know that you're probably going to have that option open to you. But I think it depends on your business model. Are you assigning a lot of these? Or is it just standard practice? I can tell you, I write it on my contracts and I don't think I've ever assigned one. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll, I go one little step further and, you know, it's, you know, Name Joe Blow Home Buyer and or affiliated entities or assigns. Ah. Because I may not know which LLC or trust, uh, title holding trust, I'm going to drop this thing into. So I'm just going to leave myself that wiggle room right at the beginning of the contract. But like Angelo said, the seller's going to have to sign off on that assignment later on. So I like that. I'll tell you what, I'm learning from you guys. I do this all the time, full-time business, and I'm and the affiliated businesses, because I always just explain to myself, I was like, I may just, and a lot of times I do take it in a different entity than what I signed, because you're making decisions if you're going to sell the entity later, or how you, if you're going to hold it, or resell it, or whatever. I do that for the commercial properties, the larger buildings, a lot more mm -hmm. often. Hey, this is Andy from RealFlow, and a couple of the most common things we hear from our listeners are, I want to become a real estate investor, but I don't know where to start. 
Or I have a real estate investing business, but I'm having trouble scaling. We took these to heart and decided to create the Real Estate Investing Lifecycle, a downloadable PDF which lays out the six foundational steps required to run a successful real estate investing business. You can download your copy today at reilifecycle.com start. Happy investing. So let's pretend now the contract's in hand. How do they market this contract? Are they marketing the house? Are they marketing the contract? Are they disclosing it's just a contract? Great question. Great question. That is a topic being debated in a number of different states with lots of different answers. So let me give you some guidelines that will work pretty much across the United States. If you're not the owner of record, if you do not have something on title, on title that's recorded, claiming you got an ownership interest in the property, you can only market your contractual interest. And that means you have to disclose that it's a contract for sale. Now, that means you don't own the house. That means you can't advertise the house. That means you shouldn't show pictures of the exterior of the house. That means you shouldn't adre- advertise the address of the house. The only state that provides an exception to that is Texas. Texas will let you do that as long as you have the disclosure language that Texas wants. Other states don't want you to do anything like that. It's merely, I have a contract for sale on a 2,000 square foot, three bedroom, two bath bungalow in the Richmond Heights subdivision. If you're interested, contact me. And then from there, in a private communication, you can begin to release more information. And obviously, if they want to look at the contract, it's going to disclose the address of the property and everything else. Okay. I usually tell people, and I've gone down to the Department uh, of Commerce with the realtors, and I've told them, if I'm buying a contract, let's say it's not even real estate, if I'm buying a contract for widgets, for pencils, there's going to be a picture of the thing in there. It's going to be disclosed what it is. They're not happy about it. Um, I can tell you that. And usually, like we spoke before, it's not just about legal. It has to be what the underwriter for title wants. It's a lot easier just to make them happy. So mm-hmm. although I might not necessarily agree with their assessment that you can't have a picture, they're the ones that are going to bring you in and you're going to have to argue in front of them. And if you have to argue, you got to pay somebody to go down there with you. Now, hang on, Angelo, because you and I are right. We might be saying the same thing. We might have a slight difference here. In the advertising of the contract for sale, I don't think you can use a picture. But I think you can put a picture of the property inside the contract. Yes. And say, as part of the contract, that the seller represents and warrants that the property will be in the condition as depicted in exhibits one through five pictures of the house at the time of closing. That, that does sound like a loophole. It's just, <laughs> it's just two lawyers yeah. thinking things out. I, I'm, I'm just saying that I may or may not have been in front of the Vision Real Estate, and Angelo may or may not have accompanied me one time down there. <laughs> and they may or may not have any idea what that answer is either, because it's a question I had to them. And there was a lot of debate, is can you put a picture? And can you talk about the, con- the house? And I know like with real estate agents, real estate agents will have assistants that will go and open doors for them and so forth, but they're not allowed to talk about the house, the price, or anything else. So how does that flow through to the investor world? I mean, because we're talking about once you enter dialogue with them, am I allowed to enter into dialogue or is that even a no-no too and I have to let someone just guess? Dialogue with whom? With my potential buyer. Once I'm having a conversation with my potential buyer about them buying the contract from me, I can tell them anything I want to that's relevant to that transaction. 
I would agree with that. Yeah. Tell them the address. Have them yeah. at the house. This is what you're buying. Because yeah. where the distinction is, and this is a point Angelo and I were both making, but I don't think we put it out clearly, is when you're doing a mass market advertising that can be seen by anybody and everybody, unless you have a signed listing agreement by the homeowner and you're a licensee, you can't advertise the house for sale. Now, when you're having a one-on-one -on -one private conversation or a small group private conversation, you can disclose the whole contract, you can disclose the address, you can put pictures in there and so on. Just make sure that if you're doing that via text message or email, you include a disclaimer in there, do not forward, confidential, private, et cetera. Okay, let me bring all this back in. To everybody watching that's getting scared now saying, uh, this whole wholesaling thing, I wasted all my money at that weekend boot camp. No, they didn't. <laughs> all right, it's okay, let me simplify this. You have a contract. If you saw the last episode that we all discussed, the cleanest, easiest way is to close the contract, and now they personally own this property, either themselves or in a corporation. What scares a lot of the folks at home is the money. They're like, where am I going to get $40,000, $50,000? I can't pay my rent next month hardly, which goes back to the capacity. So... How are they going to get the money? Let's talk about transactional funding. Angelo, define transactional funding for me. Transactional funding is usually on a double close that we were talking about, whether it be the minute, two days, three days, um, three weeks later. But you'll talk to a lender that will finance the deal at some percentage, 100%, 50%, whatever you agree to, and they'll fund the money so that you can purchase it. It's and usually the shorter period of time. Yeah, and they're yeah, usually a week or less. And there's a lot of companies out there that do it. And that space is getting more and more competitive, and that money's getting cheaper and cheaper. I know that here's a shameless plug for RealFlow, which uh, produces this show. <laughs> and this was not a leading question to get into this, but I happen to know that from an inside source that they are going to start transactional funding through the software. That if you have the property under contract and you have a buyer lined up on the other side and it's all clean and good, that you can obtain the financing through RealFlow, which is pretty cool. And it makes life, I can just tell you, on my end, to close the property, makes it's a sleeping pill. It, it makes is. it much easier. Yes. It <laughs> makes all those dogs that were barking go to sleep. Right. And, and in some markets, I think it's absolutely vital that you have that ability because those markets are still so hot and so frenetic that you don't want to advertise you've got a contract for sale for someone to go in there and try and screw it up on you. Right. Sweet talk your, your seller and interfere with that contract. Go ahead, close on the deal. And then, folks, the moment you walk away from the closing table, advertise that house any way you want because now you own it. You can FISBO it. You can list it, whatever. And you can put it everywhere. Most aggressive marketing campaign possible, all, a lot of which you can do through, right through RealFlow. Now that you own it, you can do all that stuff. Right. And you actually talk about, aren't you, you are one of the instructors in RealFlow in some of the classes, right? That is true. Again, shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it does. It's a, it's a great way to, um, when, when you own it, the peace of mind is just there. One of the things that you shouldn't do when you said people are getting scared and you sort of alluded to this, if you put a property under contract and you tell me, hey, would you be interested in buying this contract from me? And then I go ahead and forward that and I add a bunch of money to it and I send it over to Jeff and then Jeff adds some money to it and sends it to someone else. Don't do that. Oh, that is what I call, <laughs> that is what I call daisy chaining, yeah. joint venture wholesaling. To me, it's parasite, parachuting into parasite on the deal. <laughs> and it really 
pisses me off. <laughs> it's illegal. It's all get out. <laughs> as a host, I make this all about you, but I have to share at least one story that happens to me quite frequently. I owned a house and I stuck it on the Facebook marketplace. And literally, I had someone offering me my house back at a marked up price. And I know I don't have a contract on this house. I know it's still available. So I played the game for two weeks. Good. For <laughs> two it. weeks, I'm like, I am so interested, man. When can I close? And finally came back and said, it looks like he sold it because I wouldn't respond to him. But it was, oh. oh yeah. That's happened to me too. That's funny when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Your own property's marketed to you. Yeah, I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Is this under contract that I don't know it? <laughs> so, okay. Now that we, we've identified the transactional funding piece of it. What, how would you differentiate the difference between private money or hard money and transactional funding? Because a lot of people think that hard money lenders what they need. Mm, hard no, money has its own, no, yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah, there's, I'll split it up my way, yes. okay? Hard money is for a longer term duration on a fix and flip, okay? And there's guys out there who specialize in making hard money easy. In fact, one of my clients, that's his marketing brand, okay? And he's in Minnesota. Um, private lending, private money, is whatever sort of a personal relationship you can build out with other people in your circle of influence that want to lend you money. That's not a business to them. Hard money lenders, they're in the business of lending money, okay? Uh, in fact, I've got friends that are lobbying today for the ability to continue to do that in the state of Texas. They're right there right now as we're recording. They're doing this. So it's hard money lenders is a business. Private lenders are, it's a relationship. It's not a business for them. It's a relationship. And you're giving that private lender three, four times percent, three, four times more money that they're earning with you than that they're earning on a certificate of depression down at the bank. So why not do that? You know, why not make 8% instead of 2%? I think hard money lenders gets a bad rap. It's just that and connotation. People think that they're taking advantage. They're trying, they're out there to screw people. And it's not the case. You have all kinds of Covenants, regulations, uh, not regulations, but points, interest rates, things of that nature. Just like flippers had a bad name for the longest time, but legal definition of flipper is just someone who buys and sells within six months. Or is it a year? It's one it's a year. Yeah. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're buying it and reselling it within a year. How is that bad? But everyone's like, oh, flipper, they're coming in, they're destroying, it's always bad. No, we're adding value. Right. We're adding value. Private lenders, hard money lenders, Go for a day, transactional funders, they each have their own separate niche. A lot of times they bleed over in each other, but they're all adding value to the true relationship and transaction. I want to go back to this adding value. This is a pet peeve of mine mm -hmm. that I, I talk about for wholesalers. What is your value add in a deal? I feel that there's no value add with some of these wholesalers. They said, I'm buying a house from Jeff for $10,000. Angela, you should pay $20,000. But they're not doing anything to line up rehab costs or show comparables or do any work to it. Talk about value add for a second. Sure. A wholesaler can add value one of two ways. They can either identify a property that needs to come to market and get it brought to market that otherwise wasn't going to be brought to market. They've added value by doing that. The other way that they can add value and legitimately do so is provide realistic, emphasis on the word realistic, comps, <laughs> and a scope of work. And maybe they can use the hammer point project estimator inside a real flow to be able to show what it will really cost 
to fix this house up, not this $5,000 for paint and carpet kind of right. nonsense, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that's two ways of adding value. And I'm sure Angelo's got some other stuff he could add. Another one, and you tend to bring these to me a lot, is when the title is beyond messed up. Granddaughter <laughs> lives in there. <laughs> Grandfather and grandmother passed away. It went to the parents. The parents got divorced. There's other kids. <laughs> and there's... We have to open up probate from 20 years ago. We have to file affidavits. We got to track some guy down to California for signatures. That's the other value that you're adding is oh, that's huge value. All this together. That's huge value because nobody else is going to hang around and make that transaction close. This yeah. is, you have just described like half of my deals. Like just today, I had a guy that died five years ago. They found a, like unknown heir, and there's an affidavit of inheritance. I guess you can file to uh, skip probate. With certain conditions. With certain conditions. I don't know. Let's go really deep on this again and confuse everybody. <laughs> Let's do that one off the record. <laughs> we did it again, guys. There are a ton of knowledge bombs being dropped today. Um, let's let's do this. Let's kind of reel this back in and kind of hear both of your things going through a wholesale deal all the way from marketing to find the deal all the way to selling it the right way and step by step if you're a Betty Crocker on the back of the cookie box telling how to do it. Wow. And try and do it succinctly. And yeah, and we, and we have like two minutes for you to do this, so go ahead. Okay. So you're going to find a deal today based upon relationships. It's going to be how you cultivate those relationships, how you continue to remind those people that, hey, if you got a friend that's got a problem property, excess property, I'll buy it. Once then have a legitimate, meaningful dialogue with the seller, get it under contract. Get it with a really tight contract that covers all the things that Angelo and I talked about in the last episode, which is a shameless plug to go back and watch it again. <laughs> then bring the contract to the title company, start title and escrow, and then determine, am I going to close on this deal or is this something that maybe I have to go ahead and assign it? Figure that out. If you're going to assign it, because you're not going to close on it, then you have to be careful how you market it because you can only market the contract. If you close on it, you can market the house the moment after you close on it. I was going to go back from last episode, actually, when we were talking about you put it under contract, you can't get the assignment fee, you add it for the basis. Mm. If, you're, if you're working with a realtor and the realtor sells it, and let's say as an investor, you're and a little off topic, so I apologize, but I wanted to make this point before. But if you're a realtor and you find the property and you're making 10,000 on it, the 10,000 is a commission and that can be used then as the, you know, towards the purchase price. So now you're buying the property for 110 as opposed to 100 because 10,000 went as a commission. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. I'm so glad you went back to that. I meant yeah. to mention it before and then yeah. we got tied up and we had to finish. Yeah. And but that's good. That that's was one good. of the main things I wanted to say on that. Yeah. Let me bring something back here and ask how you would handle this. On some of the banks with HUD properties and so forth, there there's restrictions that they're trying to have kind of like control beyond the sale of what you do with this property once you once you buy it. So I feel like once I buy something, whether I want to move in, burn it down, sell for a million dollars, it's mine. You got your money, I got your pro property. Mm. But they don't see it that way. Mm. So how much are there teeth in the law? Or can I really be in hot water if I violate some of the terms and conditions? Yes, you can be in hot water if you violate some of those terms and conditions. And I'm going to speak to it from a perspective that most people aren't aware of. In 2012, I successfully worked with then-Congressman Garrett's office to tell FHFA how to pull back Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae from these ridiculous restrictions post-closing of you can't sell this house for 180 days or whatever. We got to choke back to 30 days. Okay, so I'm very familiar with that. Now, when you're the owner of the property, you can determine what kind of title your buyer gets. 
and I can put a restriction on that title. And if that restriction says, hey, Rob the house guy, you can own this house, but the restriction you're getting with the deed is you can't resell it for 90 days, that can be legitimate. So there are some ways to work with that. There are some ways to work around that, but be careful to do it in an honorable way with integrity. And I'll put a different hat on as uh, I'm on city council. And I don't like people necessarily, usually when they're trying to bypass a lot of those things, they're not necessarily gonna take care of the property. And I wanna make sure that it stays up. And HUD has an investment to make sure the property and the community stays up. Otherwise, there's gonna be more defaults. We wanna see the houses actually being taken care of. That's a so good point. So if you're doing things the honorable way, you buy the property, you actually take care of it, you're not just trying to pull everything out, the entire value comes up. It looks good for everybody. And that's, you know, I think we were talking about this even before we started. Wholesalers have a bad rap in that, oh, you're doing everything wrong. But it's usually that probably 80, 90% of the people seem to be doing it the wrong way. And that's why people get a bad rap. If you're doing it the right way, there's no issue. What are your thoughts on taking title in an LLC, a naked, new, clean LLC, and selling the LLC off as a method of wholesaling? Seen it done, help people do it. Make sure that when I practice, practice tip for me is that I make sure that when I file the articles of organization, the Secretary of State lets me put something in there about why I'm forming the entity, the purpose. I just put in there to take title to this particular property. And then I'll put it in the operating agreement as well. So it's very clear that this is the only thing this LLC's ever done. Came into existence to buy 123 Main Street, came into existence to hold title to 123 Main Street. Then if I sell you the bag instead of the sandwich inside the bag, you still get it. I usually like to talk to the people before I walk them through how that works, only because I've seen so many people saying, well, how do I get around a point of sale? How do I get around mm -hmm. doing this? I don't want to work with people trying to get around things. I want you to do it the right way. I want to make sure that you're doing things right because when someone's only looking to get around things, they're causing problems for all the rest of the investors, all the rest of the wholesalers that are doing things the right way. So that's one of those things I try and tell people, okay, if I know you know what you're doing and that you're actually going to take care of something, let's show you how you do this so that you can accomplish the goal, do it and do it right, but also make sure that you're not just trying to... It goes back to what we talked about earlier, yeah. honor and integrity. Mm -hmm. Yep. So... A lot of people, newbies, come to me and they're asking, Rob, I need an LLC. What should I name it? Do I need an LLC or do I need a, a subchapter S? Should I do my personal name? Why an LLC? How important is the name? <laughs> is it something that is a prerequisite to doing business? It is not a prerequisite to doing business. You should have one eventually, probably about three or four deals in. If you're using an LLC to run your business, then think carefully about how you name it for branding purposes. I've got a couple of clients that they started a company, they used their initials, they did fine with it and so on. And then they repositioned it, rebranded it, and it became Move, M-U-V-E. Next thing they knew, HGTV was knocking on their door saying, hey, can we do something with you guys? Because they branded their business differently. So think about how you name your LLC. From a tax perspective, from an asset protections perspective, I like Ohio LLCs electing subchapter S tax status. That gives you kind of the best of both worlds. How many LLCs can you have? As many as you want. One of the things I tell investors, the newbies come in, they're spending months trying to come up with a name, trying to figure out how they're going to do it. Go out and make some deals. Make some money. In your own name. If you're starting out, you got little, because remember, asset protection requires you have to have assets. Okay? So let's go create some assets and then protect them. I am totally guilty of that. When I got started in the 90s, I ran across an attorney selling a course at a RIA group, and I left with more 
entities than I had properties. It was pretty cool. And a five thousand dollar legal bill. And I don't <laughs> like people using their names or their kids' names in LLCs. LLCs should be disposable. You need to be able to get rid of them. You're branding them so you want them that way. But if your name is tied to it, your kids' names are tied to it. If for some reason you have to close it down because there was a lawsuit or it just has a bad rap. You're not going to want to do that. You don't want a personal attachment to the name of the LLC, in my opinion. So true. I agree. So I agree. Can an LLC protect the owner of the LLC? It can. If you use it right, if you run it right, if you treat it like it's a separate, distinct, independent business, but if you treat it like it's just your own personal pocketbook, no, it's not going to give you that protection. The way you treat the LLC, whether it's your own personal pocketbook, that's how everyone else gets to treat it. If you treat it as its own entity, everyone else has to treat it as, as its own entity. Great advice. I've always heard from attorneys and accountants have two very different views on LLCs. The, the accountants are always like, why you have so many freaking LLCs and tax ID numbers? And the attorney's like, you need more. You should have properties everywhere. <laughs> There's different levels to do things. And, you know, you have your first LLC. And then when you have 10 properties, maybe you do it a different way when you have 20. And a lot of people say, do I need one for each separate one? I usually base it on how much equity you have. How much risk do you want to put? Let's drop some knowledge bombs here real quick. Something about wholesaling that is just a must know, like something you got to do and something you cannot do when wholesaling. Just something that they can write down, grab your pens and paper. You can do, you cannot do. Recipe for success. Go. You must always be marketing. You cannot act like you own the house until you actually own the house. I'll stress what you were saying the most. Have the capacity to actually close on these things. Talk to your lenders. Talk to those private lenders. Talk to your hard money lenders. And make sure you have the ability. So that way, when you get that property under contract, you're not making a mistake on day one. What are your thoughts on disclosing to your seller that you are just marketing their property for resale? That means you don't have the intent to perform, which yeah. means I don't think it's a valid contract. If that's what you want to do, go get your realtor's license. Amen. <laughs> I, have Amen. Said that. <laughs> I have said that to so many wholesalers. They're trying to wholesale me something to make $1,000 that they don't have a contract on. You mean they're looking for a bird dog fee, which, oh, by the way, bird dog fees are pretty much illegal. Oh, yes, a bird dog <laughs> fee. Let's discuss bird dog fees real quickly. That's another great one. There's so many things to touch on here. Yeah. Um, a bird dog fee, by definition. Getting paid for showing someone else a property to buy, for basically introducing a buyer to a seller. Hey, if you're a licensee, great. God love you if you're going to work that cheap. But if you're not a licensee, it's illegal. Don't ask for it. Don't expect to be paid. Well put. Um, is there a way to legally give a bird dog fee, finder's fee, a thank you fee? Is that, is that compensation contingent upon the transaction closing? Yes. Then no. <laughs> but if that compensation is not contingent upon the transaction closing, but is for services rendered that are going to get paid for whether or not a transaction closes, then great, fine, go ahead. You're my handyman, unlock the door, and I'm paying you to unlock that door whether the deal closes or not. Unlock the door, mow the lawn, make sure the lights are turned off at the end of the day. Great, you get paid for that, whether I sell the house or not. Whether I sell the house or not. Yep, because if it's contingent on the transaction, it's listed on the settlement statement, then they had better be a participant to the deal or they better be a licensee. And realtors can't give bird dog fees to people either. They can only give them to exactly. other realtors. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I had a, uh, a deal last week happen. I always have these crazy deals. A wholesaler brought me this deal, and it was a good number. I was driving home. It was only 20 minutes on my way. I was like, I want to go look at this. Can I look at it tonight? Can you just have your seller let me in? I'm just your contractor. I just want to take a look at this thing, and I'll tell you if I want it or not. 
Fine. Has me meet the seller. I walk through. I look at it. Nicest guy I'll ever meet. Call the guy back. I want this. And he's like, okay, great. I'll draw up an uh, assignment of contact. I go, I'll just do the assignment real quick. I'll shoot it to you. Send him an assignment, digital signature, click, click. Sends it back. The next day tells me, don't start title work yet. Just I don't want you to waste money because I really don't have a contract on this. I'm like, are you freaking kidding? So my answer was, look, you've clearly not performed at this point. Do you mind if I just talk to this guy real and say, hey, look, I really want to buy your property. This guy's just trying to sell me your property. Can we work something out? And I'll throw you a few hundred bucks for turning me on to him. So what you're telling me is if I make this contingent upon me closing this deal, I'm breaking the law. If I just call him and say, hey, thanks for the referral. Here's a few hundred bucks. Regardless if I buy it or not, then I'm okay. Yes. Here's how I'd solve the problem. <laughs> I'd make the guy that called you wanting to assign the deal to you. I'd say, listen, you're coming on contract with me as a buyer, co-buyer. Come on contract as a co-buyer. Come on contract as a co-buyer, which means you got to put some skin in the game, which means you got to sign the contract, which means you're going to run point on this thing with the title company. When it comes time to close, you can get stepped out in exchange for a little bit of money and title just title will vest in my name only. Good answer. Any thoughts on that one, Ange? It works. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I want to put my name on with another guy like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe inside of an LLC, have him a partner yeah. in there, have the operating agreement written so I know that he can't yeah. back out or mess the thing up for me like he messed it up originally. So we really can't call it a marketing fee. Nope, we can't call it a marketing fee. And I only gave that suggestion, I want to be clear to everybody watching this, I gave that suggestion because I felt that you would have the capacity to bring that guy in under your wing, teach him how to do it right, school him on the way on, not a one-off deal. It's a bring him in, show yeah. him how to do it right, get him signed up for real flow, make him come on along, and so on. So one of the things I like to do is when somebody calls me and it's Joe Smith offering me a home, I'll pop into RealFlow real quick, shameless plug, <laughs> and I'll look on there and it'll say, you know, Nancy Johnson or whomever it might be as a seller. So as they're, I, they're the owner of record. As they're the owner of record. And then now I know that it's a wholesaler. That's just something I always want to do. Is there a way you would handle that? I'd ask them how long they've been on title. And if they've been on title for 20, 30 minutes because they may have just walked away from the closing table, fine. But if they're like hemming and hawing, then you're exactly right. They're a wholesaler and move on. It's like we said earlier, the moment you close, start that mass marketing. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and, yep. <laughs> and the biggest problem with a lot of the wholesalers are they don't negotiate as well as the end buyer. Like I would negotiate in my opinion. So they're already into it heavier than I would be buying it. So I, that's a whole nother that's going to be a whole nother episode. That's a whole yeah. negotiations episode yes. <laughs> coming your way soon. So, all right. I always like to ask the question because you are both attorneys, but you're also real estate investors as yes, well. Yes, true. So what freedoms have real estate investing, what has that done for you and your family and your personal lifestyle? Real estate investing for me over the last dec two decades, two and a half decades has given me a lifestyle to where I have been able to travel more than I ever dreamed possible. Uh, a lot of it is work-related, but some of it is pleasure-related, and the ability to just travel. And the other thing that real estate investing has done for me, it has given me relationships and friendships with great people in almost all 50 states. It's just, it's just really profound. Wow. Um, it's given me the freedom to pretty much work no matter where I am all of the time. But uh, with that, it allows me 
in the middle of the day, my daughter's having a talent show at the school and I can leave at 1.30, go see that for an hour, come back and do my work. It allows me the flexibility to change when I'm actually working, when I'm doing things. Uh, I don't travel much for work. I like sitting at my desk. I like getting that kind of stuff done, making people come to me. But it's given me the freedom to join a lot of uh, civil groups, to donate, to help out in my community, to um, have my wife to be able to stay home, um, take care of our kids. She volunteers for so many things. I think she's busier than me. <laughs> and I just enjoy it. And we take vacations. I'm able to leave for, you know, three weeks out of the year, you know, at a time. And I can bring my laptop. I'm able to do my work. And other jobs that are nine to five where you show up, you can't do that. So I love that. Yep, correct. Also lets you do some stuff in the political realm as well. <laughs> I'm on uh, city council and I'm running for mayor and this is my way of giving back to the community. I want to see it grow. It's a lot of people wonder, why are you doing that? You know, you have your own business and you're doing much better over there. It's, it's my way of helping out. It's my way of growing the city with all of the knowledge that I know. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, being with us today, Jeff and Angelo. And if you just can't get enough of these guys, Jeff does have lots of training videos out there, lots of things going on that you could get more of them and more knowledge and go deeper in that rabbit hole when you get ready. And if you're in the Cleveland market and you need a fantastic real estate attorney, you have Mr. Angelo Russo here with us. And as always, I am Rob the House Guy. Thanks for watching. Don't miss our next episode coming up. We're going to be talking all about direct mail. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. Rob the House Guy, and nothing works unless you do. This episode is brought to you by RealFlow, the smart way to invest in real estate. All the tools you need to automate lead generation and marketing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe.